Today's scripture can be found on pages 8 and 9 in your bulletin. It comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 18 through 25, and chapter 9, verse 9 through 38. But first, join me in a prayer for illumination. Gracious God, give us humble, teachable hearts that we may receive what you have revealed. Give us grace that we may clearly understand and freely choose the way of your wisdom. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. As Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in a boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all the sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, and paralytics, and he cured them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The word of the Lord. Over the next several months, from now until Easter, uh, we'll be studying Jesus' Sermon on the Mount uh, from the Gospel of Matthew here uh, on Sundays. And Pastor Mike will formally uh, kick it off next week with the Beatitudes from Matthew 5. Today is a kind of prelude as we look at some verses that come before and after the the Sermon on the Mount itself. The verses that we read today uh, play an important role in the design, the the literary design of of the whole Gospel of Matthew. And let me show you what I mean. In in chapter 4, verse 23, notice that Matthew makes a summary statement of Jesus' ministry. Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. Then, in chapter 9, verse 35, we find the same thing repeated almost word for word. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness. What's the point? This is an ancient literary technique called an inclusio, and it's meant to draw our attention to what's in between the repeated phrases. It's uh, kind of like a sandwich. The, The repeated sentence is the bread, and inside the sandwich, we find two slices of meat. 
The, the first slice is the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 to 7, this essential summary of, of Jesus' teaching and, and preaching that we're going to be looking at. And the, the second slice is the accounts of what Jesus did in chapters 8 and 9, which focus especially on the healing miracles. So Matthew wants us to know two major things that summarize Jesus' ministry. He proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God, and he revealed the kingdom in acts of mercy and healing. That's what Jesus was about. Today, what I want us to see is that just as these two things were held together in Jesus' ministry, they must be held together in the lives of Christians. Word and deed, preaching and service, they always go together. That's what it means to belong to the kingdom of Jesus. So let's look a bit more closely at these passages to see what we learn. There are three things that they teach us. First, they show us the call to the kingdom. Jesus initiates with his disciples the call them into his kingdom mission. Second, we see here the distinctiveness of the kingdom. The community that gathers around Jesus is set apart in distinctive ways. And finally, we discover the power source for the kingdom. It's not really any use to be called to a mission or to be told what's special about that mission if you have no power to accomplish it. But Jesus does empower his people to be who and what he calls them to be. So let's look at these three. The call to the kingdom, the distinctiveness of the kingdom, and the power source for the kingdom. First, the the call to the kingdom. What does Jesus mean by the kingdom anyway? It's usually uh, described as the kingdom of God or, or the kingdom of heaven. But what is it exactly? Sometimes a kingdom can be a place, like the kingdom of Great Britain. Uh, But the way Jesus uses the term, it's not so much a place as it is a new administration. Let, Let me explain what I mean by this. As you may know, 2020 is an election year. And if a new president is elected, it's not just one person who leaves office, right? The whole administration changes. A couple years ago here at Geneva, we had a member who worked in state government under the previous governor. And then we had an election, and a new governor of the opposing party was elected. The next day, our friend had to submit his resignation. He was now in the old administration. This is the point about the kingdom of God. God's kingdom is a new administration arriving in Jesus, the messianic king. The kingdom that he proclaims is God's reign. It's God's rule being expressed through his ministry. God's rule over the world. And this is why Jesus' healing miracles are so important. And why I want you to see here that they go together with the Sermon on the Mount. That chapters 5 to 7 and 8 and 9 are bound together. They go together with his proclamation of the kingdom. They they don't simply show us what kind of powerful acts Jesus is capable of performing. They show us what the world is like under the rule of the rightful king. 
People experience great healing. They flourish under his command. The blind see, the lame leap for joy. And it's into this kingdom work that Jesus calls his disciples to join him. This is important. Up to this point in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is portrayed as basically operating alone. But something changes as he moves into his public ministry. He gathers others who commit themselves to a total change of lifestyle in order to follow him. From here on out, it's not just a story of Jesus, but of Jesus and his disciples. Where he goes, they go. Even when the disciples' presence is not mentioned, it's assumed that they are there. But the way in which Jesus made disciples was very different from other rabbis, other teachers of his time. Normally, a student would seek out their teacher. It's not that different for us today. For those of you who've applied to graduate school, you understand that. But Jesus came to his disciples with authority and with a clear command. Follow me. Think about what it meant for these fishermen to receive this call, to follow Jesus. Two things must have been been especially challenging for them. First, Jesus calls the disciples away from their work as fishermen. In other words, he interrupts their careers. Second, he calls them away from their family. Verse 22. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. For them and for us, I I think we can say nothing is usually more important than your career or your family, but Jesus makes absolutely clear that his kingdom is more important than anything else. It is the priority over all other priorities. We could look at other texts that, that show us that Jesus doesn't totally destroy family ties or, or dismiss the value of our work, but we see here that he does disrupt them at times. The kingdom of God is a demanding thing. Not everyone will be called to leave a parent behind or have their career interrupted, though many have done both, including some of you here. But there will be a cost. To follow Jesus is always to follow him on his way to the cross. There is no other way because Jesus knows that we so often put our priorities and our loves in the wrong order. We worship the wrong things. We take good things and we make them ultimate. This is why when we find anger and pride in our lives, the response should always be to examine our hearts and ask, what am I worshiping? What is driving my behavior? A movie scene that I often think about is from The Lord of the Rings when Frodo uh, comes to the Elven Valley of Rivendell and meets his uncle Bilbo there. Frodo carries around his neck this, this special ring of power that used to belong to Bilbo. And in the film, uh, Bilbo catches just a glimpse of the ring around Frodo's neck And his entire face changes in the most horrible way. He's ready to kill his nephew 
in order to get what he wants. It's a powerful picture of idolatry. This is why Jesus' call to discipleship comes to us most clearly when we're being challenged to tear down our idols and prioritize the kingdom of God over all else. Only then can family or career or other good things find their proper place in our lives. The promise is that when we are willing to leave our nets and submit to the rule of Jesus over every area of our lives, that we become more the people that we were made to be, not less. This brings us to the distinctive character of the kingdom. What is distinctive about the kingdom of God to which Jesus calls his disciples? This is what we'll be exploring in detail in the Sermon on the Mount. But let me just highlight two things that are linked together in our text today and throughout the sermon as well. In Matthew 4 and 9, we see that Jesus does two things. He forms a community around himself in which the disciples are called to give up everything. And, second, with the disciples, he moves towards the crowds, especially the sick and the helpless. In other words, Jesus calls his disciples to be radically different from their surrounding culture, valuing God's kingdom above all else. Yet, at the same time, they are to seek the good of the culture around them and serve others unconditionally. This is what's distinctive about kingdom people. It's not just that they're different from the world. They're radically different with a whole different set of values and, at the same time, radically loving of people who are not like themselves. People of different races or classes or beliefs. The two go together. They stand out and they move towards people who are different. The scholar of early Christianity, Alan Kreider, argues that it's this combination of traits in the early church that led to the growth of Christianity in the Roman Empire. Kreider is the author of a book entitled The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. And if that sounds familiar, it's because I've quoted it before a few times. It's probably the most important book I've read in the last couple of years, The The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. Uh, It's an academic book, but if anyone's interested in reading it with me, I'd I'd love to get together with you. What Kreider says is that the church grew in its first centuries because pagans found it attractive. But what they found attractive was not the church's worship services. After Nero's persecutions in the first century, the the Christians closed their worship services to visitors. Pagans couldn't get in. They weren't allowed in. And yet, the church was growing remarkably, even though there there was no social capital, no cachet that came with being a Christian. It was hard to be a Christian. And still the church grew. Why? Kreider argues that what attracted people was the character of the Christians. 
the way their lives were marked by concern for the weak and the poor, by their integrity, even in the face of persecution, by their life together, and by their sacrificial love. Most of all, Kreider says, the early Christians elevated the virtue of patience from something that was not valued at all in pagan society into one of the central marks of Christian character. Patience. It allowed them to remain in this difficult cultural position, both like their neighbors and different from them. He quotes from one of the earliest descriptions of Christians that we have outside the New Testament, the the second century letter to Diogenetus. The letter describes Christians in this way. Christians are no different from other people in terms of their country, language, or customs. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own or speak a strange dialect or follow some strange way of life. In their dress, food, and general manner of life, they follow the customs of whatever city they happen to live in, whether it is Greek or foreign. Yet, there is something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as if they were only passing through. They play their full role as citizens, but suffer hardships as if they were aliens. Any country can be their homeland, but for them, a homeland, wherever it may be, is like a foreign country. Like other people, they marry and have children, but they do not cast their children out. They share their meals, but do not share their sexual partners. They live in the flesh, but they are not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days upon earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They are obedient to the laws, and yet they live on a level that transcends the law. What was extraordinary about these Christians is that they practiced what they preached. And this is why our upcoming study of the Sermon on the Mount is so important. Nothing we do here matters if we're not displaying the character of Jesus in our life together. This is important for us personally, of course, but it's also important for us as a church, for fulfilling the mission of the church in a secular age. Our task is really not all that different from the early Christians. The church today must be a contrast community, distinct from the world around it, but also moving towards outsiders in loving service, especially the poor and the sick. In his book, uh, The Gospel in a Pluralist Society, Leslie Newbigin uh, wrote about what this looks like or looked like in uh, post-Christian England in the 1980s. This quote is also in your bulletin in the Reflections page. You can, don't necessarily have to turn to it now, but you can look at it later. Uh, he writes, If the gospel is the challenge, the public life of our society, it will not be by forming a Christian political party or by aggressive propaganda campaigns. It will only be by movements that begin with the local congregation in which the reality of the new creation is present, known, and experienced, and from which men and women will go into every sector of public life to claim it for Christ, to unmask the illusions which have remained hidden, and to expose all areas of public life to the illumination of the gospel.
But that will only happen as and when local congregations renounce an introverted concern for their own life and recognize that they exist for the sake of those who are not members as sign, instrument, and foretaste of God's redeeming grace for the whole life of society. To be a sign of God's grace means that we point people to the world's true king. To be an instrument of grace means that God uses us for his work in the world. And to be a foretaste of grace means that we experience now and we invite others to experience in our life together the future coming of Christ's kingdom in power. This brings us to our last point today. We've considered the call of the kingdom and the distinctiveness of the kingdom, but what is the power source for the kingdom? Jesus points us to it in our text today at the end of chapter 9. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The power source for the kingdom is prayer. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. When we pray, we align our hearts with the heart of God for the world around us. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We ask him to to meet the needs of our city as only he can do, to overcome the barriers that divide us and to bring the renewal and healing that we need. When we pray, we, we humble ourselves before the king and this spirit of humility works its way into all our other relationships enabling us to love our enemies and our friends. Most of all, prayer is the power source for the kingdom because it puts us in the presence of Jesus himself. The one who says in Matthew 18, where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Jesus does not send his disciples into the world while remaining at a distance himself. This is why we can have confidence even when our experience of the kingdom seems to fall short, when justice does not roll down like water, or when our prayers for healing appear ineffective. Even at these times, you can have confidence if you believe that the kingdom is not yours, but Christ's. If it is Christ's kingdom, then it's under his sovereign control. He can manifest it when and where he chooses. And when we do not see its fullness, we remember that we follow Jesus in the way of the cross. If there's one thing that the New Testament is clear about, it's that Jesus is with the suffering and the sick. He is present in grief and pain. At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, King Jesus speaks these words. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. 
and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Friends, this command is for you and me right here in Madison, Wisconsin. We don't know what this year will hold. May God be merciful. But if you are a follower of Jesus, I'm telling you today that you have been sent in the power of his spirit to proclaim the good news of his kingdom. And what's more, you are an agent of his healing power for any need that you may encounter. So go. Go with confidence and and go with joy because Jesus says, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Would you please pray with me? Lord Jesus, may we hear your call today in whatever way in which each one of us most needs to hear it. And may we know that you, the one who calls us, is full of compassion for all our sins and all our weaknesses. Would you transform us by your grace and would you make us the people whom you call us to be by the power of your Holy Spirit. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.